there's a story that uh, Shakespeare wrote, and it is uh, the story uh, called Macbeth, or the play called Macbeth. And in the play, um, Macbeth is visited by these witches and prophesies about the fact that he is going to uh, become king, but he will not have any heirs. And uh, it's quite interesting how him and Lady Macbeth then plan the death of Duncan, uh, the current king. And they slay him. And this, uh, this death, this murder of Duncan, lays heavily upon Lady Macbeth's heart. And uh, later in the play, we find that uh, she is so tormented by uh, the memory of this murder that she is actually sleepwalking, and in her sleep she is speaking about the things that she has done. And uh, she has a, what is called a good woman or her servant that calls a doctor in and says, you need to come and check her out uh, because something is awfully wrong. And uh, so the doctor shows up, and uh, it happens to be that she starts sleepwalking while they're there and uh, explains, uh, or they start to watch her, and she comes out, and she's looking at her hands. And uh, she recognizes that the stain of the blood is still on her hands, and she's trying to to get it off. She counts, she's looking at her hands, and there's one spot, there's two spots, and she's trying to get rid of it. And she can't. She just can't do it. And she's tormented by it. And the doctor explains that uh, this is not something physical. Uh, This is something spiritual. This is something other than what I can help you with. And ultimately, it comes to her ruin and her death and her own suicide. Now, you may not be familiar with that story, but you may be familiar with another story that uh, this is a movie that I watched as a young child over and over. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and a little brat named Violet. Uh, She would uh, basically Violet was uh, just a brat. She wanted everything. She wanted to have it her way. And uh, Willy Wonka had made this chewing gum that uh, when you threw it in your mouth, it would uh, give you the experience of a seven or 12 course deep meal. And you just chew the gum and you would feel like you were eating. And so she said, well, I'm going to have it. And she grabs it and she throws it in her mouth and not really knowing the end result. Willy Wonka is like, well, don't do that. Stop, please. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. And then she starts to turn colors of the different meals that that she is experiencing. And she starts to, you know, talk about the potatoes and the gravy and the meat and different things like that. Well, when she comes to, to dessert, uh, was it blueberry? Was it blueberry? Uh, she starts to turn violet and then she starts to puff up. And all of a sudden she is one big blueberry and she's violet. Now, I say this because we've been looking in the book of Romans in chapters uh, 1, 2, and 3, and we are walking our way through uh, Paul's explanation of why he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. And he says that in the middle of chapter 1. And we have looked at the fact that uh, even though people know God, they've turned away from him. And through chapter 2, it's the creation has revealed God to people. And even those without the law, they know in their hearts, deep down, their conscience speaks against their actions and they are doing wrong. They cannot keep the things that they know which are right. And further on in chapter 2, as we talked about last week, that even if you have the law, even if you are religious, 
It's not keeping the law that really changes you and makes you right. We all have stains on our hands and we try to get it off. We recognize that we're one big blueberry. And it's interesting because you start to think about what happens when a person is confronted with this issue of sin, which Paul is really saying, you know, we're all depraved. We're, we're, we're original sinners. Uh, back in the Garden of Eden is where it's described that uh, our great, 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 great grandma and grandpa decided to rebel against God. And normally what happens, and I've, Maybe this happened to you, but when you are cornered with this idea of sin, uh, you're like a cornered animal, and you want to fight. We don't like it when someone tells us we're wrong. We don't like it when someone tells us that uh, we've got a problem. We don't like it when somebody shows the truth, what we know deep down inside. And so we, like a cornered animal, we get vicious and we decide to make an attack. And that's kind of what Paul is thinking of in chapter 3. It's this argument that he enters into, or this dialogue that he's entering into about, if, if I have a conscience which tells me that I'm doing wrong, or if I have a law which the Jews had, the code of God, that tells me that I'm doing wrong, and and I can't do right, then I've got some questions. I've got some big questions. And he starts out in verse 1. What then, what advantage has the Jew? We like advantages, don't we? We like to get the upper hand. We like to figure things out on our own. And so I think what this little argument is, what advantage has the Jew? If you've just told me that the law has no way to make me right, or what benefit is circumcision? You've just described that it has to be circumcision of the heart. What advantage is there? Well, Paul says that there's, it's great in every respect. And what is great about it is that the Jews are the ones that were entrusted with the, the very words of God. And this idea of entrust is that they were given the privilege to keep it, to watch over it, to deliver it. They had a responsibility. They didn't have a place of position that gave them an advantage. They had a place of responsibility that gave them the advantage. They had the very words of God. And he spoke to them. I would say that's an advantage. If you had the words of God, would you say that that would be an advantage to you? Here's what God says, laid out. And that's what Paul says, they had a great advantage, but it wasn't in position. It was in responsibility. Well, what do we know of their responsibility? Well, verse 3. What then if some did not believe? Or what if some were unfaithful? Their unfaithfulness will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? What if God gave people a responsibility and they didn't follow through? 
Well, God really made a mistake here, didn't he? Does the fact that people didn't follow God nullify God? Is he not who he says he is? Because we know what the Jews did. They didn't follow it. They didn't follow through. They became concerned with other things. They didn't recognize the Messiah when he came. They didn't believe. And Paul says, may it never be. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to accuse God of something that he's not. May it never be. That is not so. No matter how man acts in the world, it cannot nullify who God is. It cannot change the fact of God's character. He goes on to say, let God be found true or reliable or faithful, though every man be found a liar or unfaithful or untrue. Paul says, here's what you will find. No matter what you see in the world, no matter what happens, God will be true, reliable. Even though when things around you do not look that way, he is still true. Even if every man in the world is found out to be a liar, which they are. As it is written, as we find in Psalm 51 that David wrote, that you may be justified in your words. These are the words that he wrote. God is justified. He is right and true. And that you may prevail when you are judged. Because what starts to happen is when we don't like the way God starts to point things out in our lives, we start to judge God. We start to think, you know what, I'm not quite sure that I like what you have to say, God. And we start to turn the judgment around. We start to question the judgment of God. Is there any advantage? Yes, there is an advantage, but it's not position, it's responsibility. And those who had responsibility were not faithful with what they had laid out in front of them. Well, that's not really an advantage for you and I. So if if it's this weird advantage of responsibility, Paul goes on to say, but, and this is still in the argument, Isn't our wickedness advantageous, really? Isn't our righteousness that really makes God look good? But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Now think about that for a second. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know what? It doesn't really matter if I sin because God is who he is. He's a forgiver, so he'll forgive me. Maybe another way to put it is that God's going to forgive me anyway, so why don't I go ahead and do it? Or maybe another popular one is uh, forgiveness is always easier to ask than permission. That's really the twist that he's trying to get here. If our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, what shall we say? If my sin really brings out God's righteousness, the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? He's speaking in human terms. May it never be. 
May it never be. For otherwise, how would God judge the world? And this idea is, how would God judge the world if he allowed everybody just to determine on their own what they wanted to do? Just go ahead and not keep to the standard of his, his code. And then when it comes time to judge them, what are they going to be judged upon? How will, judge, how will God judge the world if we just let people do what they want? You know, I thought about this uh, when I was at the football game, the BSU game yesterday. I think most of us, um, ultimately we wouldn't want to do this, but I think most of us would, would like to argue our case. We'd like to be a referee with one of those little red flags in our back pocket. And when we get up to heaven, uh, we're standing before God and he kind of lays it all out before us. He's the judge and we get the little red flag out and we say, you know what, I'd like an uh, instant replay on that one. Can we just have an instant replay? Because I think you might be wrong, God. God says, sure, let's watch the show. You know, ultimately, uh, it shows us for who we are. But our sin, our unrighteousness does not bring about God's righteousness. Thinking that it's okay to go out and do whatever we want. This idea is continued in verse 7, but if through my lie... The truth of God abounded to his glory. Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? If my sin brings God glory, then why in the heck is he going to judge me? Shouldn't he treat me differently? Shouldn't he treat me as though a privileged one because I'm bringing him glory? Look how good I am at making sure that God gets the glory and I'm just going to get into my sin and he's going to be the great forgiver. And we're going to go rejoice forever in heaven because he's the glorified one. Why is he judging me if I am a sinner? Paul goes on to say, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us sin or let us do evil that good may come. Let us do evil that good may come. There's people that are walking around uh, claiming that this is what Paul's gospel taught. That you can go ahead and do whatever you want. It doesn't matter because Jesus will forgive you for your sins and you can just have fun. Now, most of you know that uh, today is a very important day in the world of the NFL. Uh, We have uh, the saintly people called the Indianapolis Colts, led by Tony Dungy, the saint of all coaches, the good man, the great man. And on the other side, we have Bill Belichick, the evil emperor of the unseen NFL world as he watches all the other teams from the sidelines trying to get an advantage. You know, we like Tony Dungy because he's good. He's a nice guy. We like it when he wins. We feel bad when he loses. Bill Belichick, we want him to lose, don't we? And we have this judgment. We make this judgment about people. We make this judgment about what is good and what is bad. And Bill Belichick may even say, let us do evil that good may come. It's this idea that the ends justify the means. You ever live that way? Well, the end result really will be 
good, a Super Bowl for our city, for our people. They'll feel good about it. They'll like each other. They'll revel in glory and they'll be happy. So it doesn't really matter what happens on the road when we get there. And Paul doesn't even address the question. He just says their condemnation is just. He thinks that's so foolish. I'm not even, Paul says, I'm not even going to address that. That is so foolish to start to think that anything evil can bring about good. So our wickedness is not an advantage. So the question is, in this perilous state that we are in, who has the advantage? We like advantages. Who has it? Because if they have it, we want to follow them. We want to seek after them. And in verse 9, that's where Paul starts. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Are we better than they? And he could be referring to the Jews. Are we any better than those Jews who are unfaithful to God's commands, His code, His law? I think he also could mean, are we any better than those who don't have the law and are sinners? And I think he just encompasses us in this big umbrella and he says, are we any better than anybody else? He goes, not at all. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under this umbrella of sin. Now look to the left and look to the right and look behind you and look in front of you and realize that the people sitting around you are all sinners. Paul has made this claim from the very beginning. We're no better than anybody else. And he goes on to string together some verses from the Old Testament to kind of show what God thinks about mankind and to kind of reveal who we are. We're all under sin. We're all under this umbrella of sin. Just as it is written in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands or no one who has right thinking. There is none who seeks for God or searches earnestly for God. None, not even, none, none. And that equals no one. Zero. You know, that's kind of a hard thing to think about, hard saying, because you, you look in the history and you think, well, there's some pretty, pretty wise people. But we have to conclude from what the Old Testament says that there's not one. And I was thinking about when I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, like Gandhi, he's a pretty good guy. Didn't like wars, tried to love people. But we have to say that he didn't search earnestly for God. So, Paul kind of turns to a positive side. He doesn't want to stay negative very long. So he says, well, let's, let's talk about all of us. Let's have a warm, fuzzy feeling. Well, no one, in, no, not, no one, not even one. Well, what about all of us? Well, all of us in verse 12, well, we've perverted or turned aside together. We've done a good job at this. We've decided to go together with one another. Hold hands and join together the perversion of humanity. We have become useless, or we've gone the wrong way. There is no one who does good, or no one who is helpful. 
Not even one. So as we've turned together, we have become useless. We don't do any good. And there's none of us that are doing good. And we're doing, I'm glad we're in this together. You know? And he kind of describes who we are in verse 13. Their throat, their throat is an open grave. Now, I haven't spent too much time around open graves, but I can pretty much imagine that they smell. Uh, it's not probably pretty to look at. But the thing I kind of like in that, too, is this game that my daughter Camille and I play around 7 o'clock in the morning. And I call it the breath of death. Maybe you've experienced that when you wake up in the morning and you have this aroma out of your mouth, the breath of death. And that's currently what Paul is saying about who we, out, of the, out of our inside comes this ugliness, this stench. And not only does it smell bad, but with our mouth we use our tongue to deceive. We're crafty. And we don't even just do it once, we keep deceiving. And not only do we do it, but there's poison in our mouths. It's not good stuff that's coming out. And our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's who we are. Not only is our mouth and our tongue and our throat that we have problems with, but our feet, in verse 15, they're swift or they're sharp to shed and pour out blood. And as we walk, destruction and wounds and fractures and hardships and misery are on our road. We lead a, leave a road of destruction. And the road of peace, we don't recognize. We don't know what it looks like. Why is that? Because there's no fear of God before our eyes. We don't revere God. We don't honor Him. We don't thank Him, as it said in chapter 1. So who has the advantage? Nobody. Not one single person. I think it challenges us to start to look at our neighbors in a different light. What advantage does your neighbor have who doesn't know Christ? None. Your teachers, your co-workers, all of them are in one position. But Paul does go on to say, and I think he's turning the corner in verses 19 and 20, he goes on to say that we do have an advantage. But it's not because of us. It's because of him. There's one advantage. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Whether you are, whether you don't have the law, but you have this conscience that gives you an understanding of right and wrong or whether you have the law that speaks clearly about what is right and wrong we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under it and as it speaks it speaks so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to god all the world accountable to god we cannot stand before him with our mouths open we have no defenses left we are silenced by what the law says because each one of us realizes that we don't keep it. We don't do it perfectly. 
Well, why is this? Well, verse 20 goes on to say, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. We cannot work our way into being justified in front of God. You can't. Your neighbors can't. Co-workers can't. Your teachers can't work their way. Why is this? Well, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That is the advantage. We have one advantage, and that is to recognize that when we fail the law, it is to show us that we're sinners. We cannot keep it. And I thought about this with my children as I'm parenting. When I lay down the law and they don't keep it, what should I do? They're just sinners showing what sinners do best. Break the law. I think the law has other uses. We don't have time to get into that now, but one of the other uses is that it does guide us. We don't throw out the law. Jesus didn't throw out the law. But we need to understand that anytime we put up a law, we will find people breaking the law. How many of you guys, whenever you see something that's, you know, you see a bench or a wall and you see a sign that says wet paint, you just want to go touch it? Is it really wet? There's something in us, isn't there? And that's the advantage. That whether we have this conscience, which if people do not have the word of God, they have this revelation of who he is. And they see that they're breaking it, that they can't keep what they know is right and wrong. They have an advantage. They can turn. They can say, I'm not keeping it. And for those of us who do have the law or the written word, we have an advantage. Not to beat each other up with it. Christians are really good at beating each other up with it. But to say, hey, we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. I'd like to read to you part of a sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And uh, I think it kind of describes somewhat clearly this position that we are in without uh, a Savior. Uh, It's a a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and I'm just going to read part of it. Uh, You can go online and type in Jonathan Edwards on Google, and you can get the whole whole deal if you want to read it. But uh, He says, um, what really needs to happen is that is there needs to be an awakening uh, to the unconverted person. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are without Christ. If you do not have Christ, you need to be, con- to be awakened. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. Those of you that we've just described that are sinners without Jesus Christ, there's this broad extended area underneath you of burning brimstone. Obviously, you probably read Dante's Inferno. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell, wide gaping mouth open, and you have, have nothing to stand upon, not anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You probably are not sensible to this. You find you are kept out of hell, but don't see the hand of God in it. But look at other things. As the, maybe you look at the good state of your bodily construction, 
Or maybe you look at uh, the care of your own life or the means you use for your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, they would avail no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person that is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you, as it, as it were, heavy as lead and to tend ta- downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy construction and your own care and your prudence and best con- contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not, were it not that so is the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one more moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The cr- creatures made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun don't willingly shine upon you and give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth don't willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lust, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air don't willingly serve you for breath to maintain a flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for man to serve God with and don't willingly subserve to any other purpose and groan when they are abused to purposes so directly contrary to their nature and end. And the world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of him who has subjected it in hope. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your head, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. If it wasn't for his great pleasure, if it wasn't for his great pleasure, we would have no advantage at all. We have no advantage. All have sinned. Every single one of us. Again, I think, how, how do we apply this in our lives? How do we move forward? Well, one, some of you here today, obviously, are, could be religious, could keep rules, but you do not have a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing is to confess or repent. This idea is that we, I think most of us think that we really are heading towards God, when in reality all of us are really heading towards the gates of hell. And this idea of repent is not saying, okay, I'm going to start doing good. The idea is I'm going to turn from the wrong way and I'm going to turn to the right way, God's way. Turn to Him. I think secondly, and we've talked about this a little bit, I think it should affect our evangelism. How do we view people when we're at the store, when we're at work? How do we view people? Sinful people do what sinful people do best. They sin, and they will do that. And they will keep on sinning until they meet the Savior of the world. 
when he enters in to transform their lives. I think another way it helps us is uh, in our value of people. In our value of people. I think the Christian community is, uh, has made a bad name for God at times when we start judging people. I don't mean that in the... I believe we're called to judge. What I mean is, I was, at, uh, I was in McCall... And there was this guy, and he had this bullhorn. It was in the wintertime, and he was just shouting at people and yelling at them, telling them they're sinners and they're wrong and they're going to hell. And I was with a group of, of adults, and they hit me on the side, and they said, why don't you go talk to him? Like, I'm the token speaker of the group. Uh, but sometimes what we do is we just yell condemnation down on people. I think people already know. God's Word says that they already know. How do we value people? Do we just come along and treat them as a project? Or do we come along and say, you know, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord and the second greatest is to love you? And I think the other way is to how do we treat one another in here? We're all sinners. Every single one of us. No one's better than anybody else. I'd like to end with a uh, with a little audience participation. I need four volunteers. Four volunteers. That's uh, I need somebody from over here. Jeremy, why don't you come on up? You're a good friend of mine. Let's see. Volunteer from this uh, middle section here. All right, come on up. Uh, let's. Uh, over here in this area, somebody, I need one more person from over here. Yeah, is that, are you getting up to volunteer or sweet? One more, I need one more. Why don't uh, Larry Tingler, why don't you come on up be my friend? Thank you very much. <laughs> Hopefully I have, I should have one more of these. Oh, good. Okay. Wouldn't it be nice... Um, wouldn't it be nice if, we, if there was an easier way to deal with our sins? You know, I found these uh, when I was in Seattle, and it's called Wash Away Your Sins Towelette. Um, you know, antibacterial formula kills sin on contact. So we're going to do a little audience participation here, and uh, we're going to have these guys try this out. Now I'm going to have to read this. Uh, and just to demonstrate that, uh, what an easy way to deal with sin. You know, one, r- remove the moist towelette. So go ahead and remove the moist towelette. Okay, second is, uh, you know, in your best impression of devoutly, uh, devoutly wipe away wrongdoing. So uh, devoutly. Yeah, go ahead and, and, and start to devoutly wipe away wrongdoing. Larry, you're not devout enough. Can you be a little more devout? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Then spot check for stubborn guilt. Is there any stubborn guilt that's kind of hanging on? Wipe again. Wipe again is needed. Discard sins in a waste receptacle and go forth purified and moisturized. Did you wipe away your sins? Okay. Thank you very much for being a part of that. (laughs) 
You know, another one that I found was uh, Wash Away Your Sins Lip Balm. Uh, cheap red wine flavor. Handy salvation for the sinners on the go. For liars, cheaters, and wrongdoers. It says, Engage stick, bow head, reflect upon wrongdoing. Anoint thy lips with blessed balm. Rub lips together to boost powerful sin, sin purging action. Raise head and go forth, cleanse from sin, ready to do it again. Good, good for use in the great outdoors, the bedroom, the car, or the office. So, if dealing was our sin, if, if it was just this easy, you know? But it's not that easy, is it? What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's really where we're headed. Paul has uh, taken us into the bowels of sin and the ugliness of ourselves. And that's where we need to start to recognize I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. But we don't stay there. We move on to say I'm a sinner saved by the grace of a loving God. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And just as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith, not by works.